millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 242nd episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Matthew Janekov. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Oren Kaplan. And today we have on director Natasha Kermani. She is a feature filmmaker, commercial director, branded content director, She's done it all. She's also a violinist and a composer, though we do not really talk about that at all. But uh, she made a micro-budget feature, and off of that, she got another feature. Both of them are in the genre category, sci-fi, horror, and a horror film. And her second film premiered at the COVID South by Southwest, South by Southwest 2020. And now she's in L.A., and we dig deep into how she got her movies made, why she moved to L.A. after she made these movies, and kind of the life of the indie filmmaker slash commercial director and kind of how, you know, she's been building up her career since film school to today and to L.A. And it's I kind of love digging into the why did you move to L.A. story. Hers is relatively fresh. She came from New York, which is also... I think a place that we would consider like an industry place. So it's a, it's a more of a nuanced move, I think, to move to LA from New York because you would probably typically do it a little later in your career than you would from a different market. What I was really struck by with talking to Natasha, she's so smart, so uh, thoughtful, but what was especially interesting is that she really runs a parallel career to you and I, you know, like, has a very similar trajectory just in terms of like making independent projects and balancing that with branded content and then moving that in into a, a commercial career and then sort of leveling up from there. But what's refreshing and exciting about it is that it is similar to us, but in a totally different world. You know, she's in that horror genre space, sci-fi as well. And, you know, it's just fascinating to see a totally different ecosystem, but to see the same sort of style of success, but also the same sort of tactics being used in order to achieve your goals. And so it was nice because it felt like, oh, you know, you don't have to, our advice doesn't apply merely to comedy directors, right? Like, I think that sometimes I get worried that we're, we're 
too narrow, even though this is a show, a very specific show, you know? And so it was fascinating to just kind of look into the mirror as it were and see a slightly different vantage point. Yeah. Ironically, it seems like the horror genre and community is like so cozy and friendly and like a family. And it's part of, I think what enabled Natasha to make this really smooth move across the country and still feel like she has a network of people. And that's, that's cool. It's something that we don't see as much in other genres or in other kind of segments of filmmaking. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that anytime you're in a world that's got a subgenre or, or some sort of, when things are specific enough that there are places for people to congregate and mutual interests, I think that you find that filmmakers are really excited to relate to one another and to support one another. And so all it takes is just a good excuse to, to coalesce in some way. And maybe that's being a YouTuber. Maybe that's being an indie filmmaker. Maybe that's being a horror director. Maybe that's loving stand-up comedy but i think like we are all craving that opportunity because it's a thing that we cherish so much and it's so much a part of our of our lifestyle but you know it's the reason that we started the podcast is because you don't get to talk to other filmmakers as much as we'd like so yeah um, well, speaking of talking great. to other filmmakers i'm dying to know what the heck have you been working on lately yeah, well, I, uh, I've i been writing away and did a table read for a new feature that I'm working on, and it occurred to me that we haven't really talked enough about uh, table reads as a, as a practice and as a motivational tool and, and as a part of your craft and a part of your, your process, basically. So I thought we could talk about it. It's one of those things that you can still do in the time of COVID. It, I dare say it might be a tiny bit better to do it on zoom to do it virtually than to do it in a room what do you think Oren? i think there are definitely pluses and minuses i think the big plus is it's probably easier to get buy-in you know hey you're at home quarantining I'm, we're all at home you want to hop on this zoom and uh, be part of this screenplay reading so i think that's the huge plus it's just convenient in a way you know even for us doing the podcast we haven't done it in person for such a long time and it's much easier for us to get guests because there's like literally everyone's just used to zoom so much. It's just like schedule another meeting for late at night. I think the minus is a, you don't get to feel the room, you know, as a counterpoint, I was able to look at all of my performers at once. And so when a joke was landing or when a set piece was building, I could see it on their faces in a way that I think under normal circumstances, I'd probably look to one or two people and like, you're maybe bury my head in my script because I was nervous, but being able to just like look at everyone all at once, you can kind of clock a little bit more of like how unanimous is this sentiment right now amongst the group. Whereas I think that I probably would have checked in with people fixated on one or two people been like oh they like it or they hate it and that would have made my mind up about that beat one way or the other whereas like i got a bigger a bigger picture i think yeah i mean i guess in person you could put the performers next to each other and take a step back (laughs) uh, yeah i always do but still i think it's a lot harder to look at you know six faces all at once or however many people you have yeah yeah that's interesting i mean the other thing is obviously just the 
distraction quotient when you have people at your house or wherever you're doing a table read they're not on their phone they're not looking at anything else no one's yelling at them their dogs aren't peeing on their foot or whatever happens so yeah but so i think i i think it averages out to be i mean i've never done it so i you're you've done it now i think multiple times but i it seems to me like it would average out to be about equivalent <laughs> Pre-COVID and I, during COVID. I think COVID. It, may, it may net positive, but worth it no matter what. Yeah, um, for sure. And maybe just to kind of take a, a, an even bigger step back, typically what I'll do is like, you know, you kind of, once you get the screenplay into a place where it feels solid and that it needs to be, it would benefit from hearing it out loud and from getting notes from a, a number of people and maybe having a conversation about it afterwards. Typically I'd just order a bunch of pizzas and like get a handful of friends. I'd get a person to read stage direction. I'd cast a few of the leads and then I'd have two or so other actors do all of the, the swing characters, the smaller characters who kind of come in and out basically. Right. I did um, think you could have sent us pizza. To our houses. I, you know, I, I, I do, I should, I would love to like send people like a Starbucks card or something. No, no, not you, but the actors. Do you know what I mean? Like the people who are working. Well, I feel like I, it is nice to say thank you to them a little bit. I mean, I guess just the counterpoint to that is I do think it's more fun to be part of a table read than to observe a table read. Like that's true. That's true. You are, you're read. practicing your craft more actively. I think. Have you ever been to a Passover Seder? Potentially. The world's first table read initiated 3,000 years ago where uh, a bunch of people sit around a table and we all read the story of Moses oh, sure. emancipating the Israelites out of Egypt. It's kind of like a table read. And even if you're falling asleep, when it's your turn, you're like, oh, hey, it's my yeah, turn gotta, to read. Pay, pay like, watch yeah, how yeah. good I read. Yeah. So what was your... You've done, you've done a bunch of table reads at this point. Yeah. I mean, between myself and my wife, you know, we like to put stuff up on its feet as soon as we can because i think you learn so much about what how an audience is going to react to it what things are working and also there's just nothing to compare that white hot feeling of uh shame and (laughs) discomfort of like something bombing and that's a feeling that you just have to like dive into you know like you don't put something up on its feet before it's ready but you learn what's not working really quickly and uh and you try your hardest instinctually to avoid it from there on out yeah that's interesting we had remember um zach lepovsky and adam stein who made this movie called freaks that played at tiff they told us that they had done like 17 table reads or something and their script started as total crap and ended up you know at the toronto international film festival so somehow those table reads really trans like they became yeah that's some good friendship right there there's some that's (laughs) a lot of good 17 table reads i'm guessing they recast a little between table reads yeah i mean i think uh my my cast had some fun but i don't think that they'd be down for 16 more saturday afternoons i will say one other thing a takeaway if you were thinking of mounting your own table read the person who reads stage directions which i recommend is not you because you're putting your own spin on things. I was actually also... thinking about it during your table read because when I did that show, Miss 2059, one of the writers was reading the stage direction and he he used to be a writer's assistant on a bunch of TV shows and he would be the one that was reading the stage direction and he was really good at 
evoking tone through reading and he would like set people up and he was super fast and it kind of, he kept this really high energy, but, but he wasn't reading it for feedback. It, it was like we were doing the table read with the actors right before the shoot. So departments could ask questions and stuff. It is the hardest, most thankless part. Like no one gets a laugh when they're reading stage directions. Like no one gets to show their stuff as a, as a good actor or anything like that. And also it's a way for you to understand how things will read to a reader. You know, like what sentences do they stumble over? What feels natural? What feels a little clunky? Um, So it's really valuable if it's not you, but also that you have a good friend who is able to like put a little energy behind it. And also you should tell them to read fast. Yeah. You know, what would be cool is, so, you know, um, in the sign language interpreting world, like if you are hiring an interpreter to interpret an event or something, but they either have a max of 20 or 30 minutes that they can work at a time. So if you're going to have like a two-hour event, you bring two of them and you swap them out every 30 minutes, let's say. Because it's very exhausting. <laughs> to Not not only are you doing all this mental work, but you're also kind of moving your hands at super speed. And you're kind of trying to listen to everyone and, and you're going both directions. So I wonder if having like the person that's reading the scene description, like if you're like, okay, first 30 pages, like switch every 30 pages. Two uh, that's people could yeah, be maybe. kind of a fun thing yeah i mean i think you do land in a little bit of a groove so i but i don't know that person they're, they're doing you a real solid so so don't take it for granted that's well, for sure do you have any other tips for table reads like do you think people need to read this the actors should read the script before the table read i asked them to come in cold i didn't want them to read the script and partially because there's like a little bit of a mystery uh, element to this story so I wanted to kind of track and clock does the audience know what I want them to know at any given time basically and so that was important for me but I did give them character descriptions that were super super quick and hopefully helpful early on yeah that's cool yeah I thought I mean you had a great cast too yeah I was really really lucky my cast was really wonderful yeah I need to I, I feel like I have always just kind of been a little scared of table Oh, it's terrifying. Yeah. It's like you said. It's like you're putting it all out there and people in real time judging what you wrote, you know, in front of your face. But it does seem super valuable. Yeah. I mean, also, you know, not, not this time, but I think the time before with, with a different movie, I worked very hard on the script, but it was not the sole writer. It was someone else's script, and then we kind of tweaked it. And I remember him being really frustrated and upset because a lot of jokes didn't land. And the actor that I had brought in to play the lead had, like, a huge YouTube following. Was, like, in, like undeniably very funny. Like, super, super funny. And so I was like, look, man, the jokes aren't working on the page. So it's like... It's not the actor, it's us. And I think that that can be... Was it Snoop Dogg? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So look, he's not a uh, traditionally trained comedic performer, but he's been on stage for, what, 30 years at this point? No, no. Um. Uh. But, you know, I think it is easy to be like, well, if they'd done a better job of reading my script. But, like, it's the same point as, like, having someone else reading stage direction. No one is... You, you can't 
walk in there and tell people how to read your screenplay. They're just going to get an email and crack it open and decide whether or not they want to make your movie. And so it's all going to be there on the page. And look, there are limitations to like someone's imagination or skill. Reading a screenplay is a challenging and unique thing to do, but that excuse only lasts you for so long. Yeah. Well, it definitely seems valuable to invite like some friendly people to like when my wife was in part of Groundlings and going through the program there, you always want to invite some really good laughers to your shows. You know, it's funny. This group, I don't think there was a, there was one good laugher. Oh yeah. She was really good. Yeah. Yeah. But like I realized in the moment I was like, oh no, I invited all that's funny people. <laughs> And I'm the worst. I'm like the most that's funny. Yeah. Like of anyone. Well, you had a chat also in Zoom and I thought that was helpful to point out. Did you like that? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it was like an easy way to say like, oh, I like this or I like that or this doesn't make sense. But I was kind of just Liz and me, (laughs) Liz Manichel and me writing in there. So and then then I kind of just like took it easy. Also, I realized I was kind of like, poking fun at the scene description reader <laughs> and then yeah, i felt yeah. bad because i i kind of know him and i thought it was he you could know, take it it's okay i thought he could it's, take it but then i would yeah. realize like how much work he was doing and i was like <laughs> oh now like, i'm just like making fun of him for you're like oh i just seem like such a jerk busting his chaps while he's also trying to slog his way through this screenplay the other thing actually that is really nice about doing a table read is that that is a very external very public deadline so I reached out two weeks ago and said, hey, everybody, you know, I'd love for you to read this role or whatever. Oh, and the script um, wasn't ready yet? And the script was not done. No. I mean, it was close. It was close. But I knew there was a, I still had a checklist of like scenes that I wanted to tweak. I was like about two thirds of the way through like kind of a quick little polish, you know, so it forces you to get it ready because you have to send it to people so that they can all read it out loud at the time that you schedule. So it's a it's a nice external deadline, which I think can be really motivating for people and was for me. For sure. And do you feel like you got a lot out of it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You always do. And I think that, you know, sometimes it takes a little bit of time to look back on it and realize what you wanted to tweak. But yeah, I got a lot out of it. So I recommend it, everyone. If uh, you decide to put up a table read of your own, drop us a line. Give us, you could uh, leave us a voicemail, 262 shoot one. You could shoot us an email at just shoot a pod at gmail.com. If you need Matt to read all the scene description, he's available. That is not true. That is <laughs> reserved only for my enemies. I'm quite bad at it. Um, but do let us know. Well, cool. Before we talk to Natasha, I just wanted to remind people that we have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. And if you feel like you get anything out of this podcast, if you enjoy hearing about film once a week, every Thursday, I mean, we've been putting this out every Thursday for like four years. I don't know. I mean, I know we weren't that consistent. Well, we weren't that consistent in the beginning. I definitely have multiple memories of being in an airport on Thanksgiving morning, uploading the episode. What? Now you're saying Thanksgiving always falls on a Thursday? (laughs) It's a super Thanksgiving. Um, So... Anyway, if if you have enjoyed being on this journey with us, either as of recent or for many years, and you feel like uh, just chipping in for some of the editing and some of the other things we do, you can go to patreon.com slash just shoot a pod, give us a dollar a month, two bucks a month, four bucks, 
10 bucks gets you a hat. 20 bucks gets you a t-shirt. Whoa. 500 bucks gets you to be the EP of my next feature film. Just kidding. 500 There's bucks, no. I will definitely read your, your scene, scene description. description. Scene description at a table read. But uh, Matt will uh, give you Matt. the 500 bucks. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, nah, you don't need to give us 500 bucks. Yeah, please don't. That would be the ten dollars. Ten dollars is my favorite, my favorite tier. <laughs> anyway, Patreon.com/slash JustUnitPod, and we appreciate you listening, regardless of whether you're a patron or not. And now, on with the show. Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. Well, Natasha, you've had your second feature debut at the infamous 2020 South by Film Festival. The South by uh, that never was. Yes. Yes. The South by by. Ironically, your film is called Lucky. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I'm sure that joke is uh, as funny this time around. We, as we still got lucky. We still got lucky this year, but but we didn't. It didn't feel great in uh, early March. We'll put it that way. But we didn't know what was to come. Uh, South by getting canceled was sort of the canary in the coal mine. Actually, it was a few days before like like Tom Hanks got sick and the NBA closed down, and it was like then the rest of the country was like, oh shit, this is for real, for real. But all the South by we were already like in mourning, so. <laughs> to me, I feel like South by was like the signal for me. I was like, "Oh, okay." I guess because it, it was on the edge, companies. right? They were like deliberating: should we cancel? Should we not cancel? For a long time, yeah. And people were dropping out. It was actually really quite depressing and almost a relief when they just canceled it because you know they, they as a filmmaker, right? They give you your calendar. And it's like all the different like AV Club and Hollywood Reporter and all the people who are going to talk to you and do the thing. And you just look at the calendar and just see things like dropping off. <laughs> oh, 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 you mean As like they like, sent you a link, uh, like a digital people calendar. people canceled, yeah. Like the only thing I'm going to be on is just shoot it. Yeah, we'll pass <laughs> on this. Oh, I would have so been depressing. honored. I would have loved that. But in the end, there was zero things happening. We so. actually didn't. We have spoken to quite a few South Bay. Yeah, this year in particular, been, been I feel like we've, we've had a lot of South South by. Uh, we've got time to chat. Yeah, That's there you go. <laughs> Can you give us the log the logline for Lucky? Yeah, my logline is terrible. I, I definitely need to do that before the movie comes out. But um, basically, the the movie is a horror satire um, starring Bria Grant, who is brilliant, um, and it follows a self help book author who um, basically finds herself. Uh, in a home invasion scenario, night after night, and there's a man who's coming to kill her, 
And uh, basically the movie just goes off the rails from there and the world around her really starts to distort. And it's more of an examination of, you know, the, the sort of Twilight Zone experience that she goes into using the home invasion slasher movie as the, the skeleton of it. Um, but we're sort of playing with other themes. Just a clarification, when you say that it happens over and over again, it's not in a time loop situation. It's not a time loop. It's not a time loop, but it does sort of have that rhythm of every night he's coming back, he's coming back, he's coming back, and then it gets crazy sort of out of Nightmare on Elm Street a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of DNA of of sort of 80s uh, horror movies in there, although it is it definitely goes its own direction. So. <laughs> I'm curious, are there other little bits of DNA sprinkled throughout like other 80s movies or, or other films in general that uh, Lucky kind of draws inspiration from? So Bria Grant wrote the script. The lead in the movie also was the writer on the movie. Um, and she actually was in the Rob Zombie Halloween movies. <laughs> she really is a um, a horror a horror uh, scream queen in her yeah, own right. Icon, really. you could say. You know. yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. Um, and so I think a lot of that, that sort of scream queen DNA is in there. I would say, um, you know, for me, definitely Scream, the movie Scream. Uh, Boy, is in there. I don't know the last time people watched Scream. It's a masterpiece. Masterpiece. I feel it like people have incredible. been talking about it a lot lately. Is there a reason? Yeah, there's a reboot. Uh, not a reboot. There's another one. Oh, right. That's right. So there's that to look forward to. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so definitely a lot of those things. But again, we really didn't, um, when we were going into production, we didn't set out to uh, create any intentional homage, which is why I say it's in the DNA of it, you know, and we're really working within the bones and in the skin of a slasher, you know, and then doing our own story within that, those sort of bones, as I was saying. Would you, uh, I know plenty of people can't maybe cringe at this term, but I think it's a compliment. Would you call it elevated genre? Is that a thing? (laughs) Natasha's doing a very polite job. (laughs) Smiling. Why would anyone take offense to elevated? Well, because it's the same as like a graphic novel and comic book. Comic books aren't bad. Well, genre movies aren't bad. Yeah. I, so you look, don't mean to diminish the other, uh, you know, works, basically. Yeah. And I think a lot of genre is elevated um, in different ways. So, yes, in a lot of ways, certainly um, we are taking the genre and sort of discussing elevated concepts within it, right? So we really see the film as a conversation starter. So you go into the movie, you can almost be laughing a little bit at the more comedic um, elements of it. And then sort of by the end of the movie, you realize, okay, there's a conversation to be had here. There's a larger conversation. So sure, in that way that you're, you know, elevating the conversation and then hopefully the conversation will continue after people have turned off their TVs or left the theater or whatever it is. Um, and I, I think that that, um, sure, if you want to call that elevated, yes. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. Artsy-fartsy genre is good, too. It's not you know? artsy-fartsy. It's <laughs> no, certainly not. My first film is artsy-fartsy, but um, and I, I don't shy away from artsy-fartsy by any means. But no, Lucky is a lot of fun. And um, yeah, <laughs> sure. Elevated. <laughs> Great. So, okay. So I just want to point out that your writer star's name, Bria. Bria. Mm-hmm. That's the city I'm from. We pronounce it Brea. Oh, but I but that's where I grew up. What so city is that? Cool. Where is that? Brea. It's in Orange County. Oh, next to Fullerton and Anaheim. So, how did Brea come to you? you? Your first movie, I haven't seen it, but I watched the trailer, and it's also, it seem it feels sci-fi turn like that veers into horror. 
Um, was that kind of what put you on her map, your first movie? Yeah, we kind of met each other um, socially just by being in the genre scene. Um, when I moved out to LA, I was really just lucky to have her as a friend. We just sort of knew each other from the network, basically. Like the horror scene is pretty small. Uh, <laughs> so is that actually, can I dig into that for a second? So yeah. you made this this um, horror film. It's more film. sci-fi, more, more sci-fi, I would say, with some horror elements and some horror actors, but yeah. <laughs> but uh, importantly, maybe you're kind of at the same festivals. It's the same. Like the Fantastic everything. Fest type of yeah, yeah. Like yes, bloody disgusting vibe. type of. And so you're in New York and then you move to L.A. And do you because you're kind of new people in that work in that genre in New York, you automatically kind of have like a little bit of a network in L.A. when you Yeah, moving? for sure. I think for sure. And I, that might be something I know you guys are in comedy. It's sort of a similar vibe where we do kind of know each other and there is a small ish scene. I also signed with a manager uh, off of my first film. So when I moved to L.A., he also helped introduce me to a lot of people. And then um, the and other- he was like an LA-based manager? He's LA, yeah, he's LA-based. And then uh, the distributor of the film also um, was just really in the scene and in the world. So just basically through those sort of key members of, of the film's team, um, I started to get to know people and then, yeah, just ended up hanging out. <laughs> That's awesome. But, but I mean, this- I know it sounds really obvious. Sorry, sorry to just to keep interrupting you, but- we hear a lot of people that are like working in film in other places and they move to LA and they have a really hard time kind of jump starting a network. Um, and they're like, Oren, Matt, what should we do? How do we and build we're a network? Like, but uh, take improv classes, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, go to UCB. Yeah, I get um, it. LA can be very lonely. I get it. I'm from New York. I grew up in New York and uh, it's just such a different, you can go outside of your house and meet people. And LA is certainly not like that. So I think I had an advantage, um, because of those things I listed the festivals and representation and the distributor and all that kind of stuff gave me a sort of backdoor <laughs> entry, like literally sometimes just going to parties and people already being familiar with my work because it had done the festival circuit or whatever it is. So yeah, I think that is really helpful if you're a filmmaker being able to, you know, hot swap into a new community in that way is good. And, and also the horror community, you know, people are aware of each other's films in a way that I think sometimes that's not necessarily the case in like web media or whatever, you know, like it, it you do have, you know, cachet when you can say, Oh, I made this movie and people have seen it. That horror means people watch movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is not true for all film communities. <laughs> and they'll watch movies that don't have like huge they mega love it. stars. In There's it. a thriving independent horror scene. Um, and yeah, people do consume for sure. Yeah. What about sci-fi people? Do they watch movies or is it a little? Yeah, it was tricky? just I think we're just it's they're very rare. There's a hell of a lot more horror movies than there are sci-fi movies because sci-fi is really fucking expensive. <laughs> So, um, yeah, we get we get sort of like uh, looped in often with the with the horror community. But but I have to say, like, I have really always loved horror and I, I, I love very specific aspects of horror. And so I think when I initially brought my first film out, which is a very sort of dreamy sci fi, it has some horror elements to it, but it really is not violent. It's not bloody. It's not really any of those things. Um, it's more like a visceral existential horror. <laughs> I was a little worried because I said, 
I, I don't know if these people are going to accept me or my film or any of these things, but I think the horror community is vast and it's multifaceted and there's many different little pockets that you can find yourself in. So I was very grateful. Do you think you need to be like a fan of horror to like, were you a fan before you came in or is it something that you kind of discovered once? Oh no, I was a fan movie? before for sure. For sure. Um, for years. I mean, even as a kid, I loved, you know, I loved it. Um, you know, seeing Alien for the first time or seeing The Shining for the first time or seeing Nightmare on Elm Street, you mentioned. I mean, that that stuff is um, really burned into your brain forever. So, and I think most of us would say it for sure. I think most working horror people, especially in the indie scene, you really have to love it because it's not easy and the budgets are low and the scheduling is brutal. So if you don't get excited and you don't have fun <laughs> with that kind of filmmaking i don't really know why you would why you would do it i kind of think that is true for all filmmaking i always joke it's easier to like you could just you know do real estate or something like if yeah, you don't if you have any it, other skills or go to law school you don't have to like your job and you still make so much money yeah um what's that like <laughs> i don't know but I, but I do think it's interesting because you hear of people that get into horror because they hear that it's like an easy way, like you can make a low budget horror movie that's successful, right? Because you don't typically need like these giant movie stars. And so I feel like a lot of people make horror films that aren't that into horror and they probably make not very good horror films. But yeah, you encounter those folks every once in a while, but I don't think they really lock in or engage with the community or the festivals or they're not really taking advantage of what the horror scene has to offer. So they kind of, I imagine they kind of come and go and that's fine, but... Based off of, you mentioned what the horror scene has to offer. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because I think that there's probably a lot of listeners at home who are, are longtime horror fans, right? Or or sci-fi fans, genre fans in general. We, we don't have a ton of that style of director on, actually, to be frank. And Oren and I aren't really experts in it. So I'm just curious about maybe some of the more concrete elements that you found to be uh, especially helpful or, or unique even? Well, purely from a creative perspective, it's the opportunity to paint in bold colors. So if you're a filmmaker that likes exploring everything that a cinematographer can bring to the, to the table, right? You look at a film like Suspiria um, and the opportunity there to play with color or lighting in a way that a drama would never really allow you to. So you're able to really turn the expressionism dial all the way up um, and if that excites you as a filmmaker, then it's a great opportunity for that. For me, I'm really interested in world building. That's sort of why my, my first love was science fiction, for sure. Again, even the first horror movie that I fell in love with is Alien, <laughs> which is a sci-fi horror, right? And I love the blend of the two genres. So the opportunity to build a world, right? To make a film that not only is a reflection of your world, but to envision a different version of your reality or a better version or a scarier version or whatever you want to do. Again, it's that heightened expressionism sort of to the max. And then career-wise, I mean, I think to speak practically and logistically, like how many indie level micro projects are you going to be able to stretch your wings as far as filming action sequences, as far as filming visual effects, practical effects, um, special effects makeup. If this is stuff that you want to keep doing, um, if you want to keep moving into that sci-fi world, horror world, action world, which is very much a part of our industry, then this is a great place to cut your teeth and try it out and say like, oh, 
this, <laughs> this is, this is how you mix blood, right? Like this is the best way to do it. And maybe it doesn't really fucking matter in the end. If you just want to be a director that sort of like sits around and doesn't do too much, collects your paycheck and goes home. But if you like getting your hands dirty and knowing Which how... I don't think there are a lot of directors. Yeah, I would love to be introduced to one. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've been doing you... the show for five years. I don't think we've met one yet. Yeah, well, because you're probably... <laughs> you're choosing interesting people, I'm sure. But, um, you know, there there's just an opportunity to get your hands dirty to really understand on a granular level at an early level. So you don't have to get to Spielberg status to be playing with the big toys. You can do it at a micro level or an independent level. And I, I was personally very excited by that. And even with my first little sci-fi, you know, the opportunity to feel more and more confident, even my college film, I was working with visual effects and, um, you know, really starting to feel more confident with action sequence, how to build an action sequence, how to build a horror sequence, how to, how to show somebody having a terrible accident. All those things are, are the building blocks of how, a film in that space is made. So I think that's an opportunity. Love it. So great. Yeah. That, that there's so many incredible nuggets in that, that what you just said that I think our listeners are really going to click with. Actually, it's great. I love it. I want to just go back for a minute. So you went to NYU. Did you go to Tisch film school? I did go to Tisch. Yeah. So, and your first feature out of film school was imitation girl, right? That you, yeah, it, it was not out of film school. I, I worked. Um, so I graduated in 2010 and uh, ended up doing a lot of branded content right out of school. So working with clients and um, making little short form pieces uh, while also doing short films and sort of like narrative stuff and continuing to explore the genre side of things. But what happened was we built our production company off of that branded content work. Um, and because I had that like you and some friends or yeah. partners or mm-hmm. yep so um yeah i have two partners and then we have a network of freelancers that we work with closely so we sort of build or scale down our teams depending on what the what the job needs and do you always direct or do you produce also and do other things i'll produce every once in a while right out the gate um we were kind of all jacks of all trades um my partners were actually one was a cinematographer and one was a lighting guy <laughs> and i myself had a background in music and sound design and i was also a seeing at the time so i was an assistant camera at the time as well to sort of like make money and and you're a composer too right yeah i, I wasn't doing as much professionally i was more just like working with for myself the music is a whole nother side of myself that I try to keep a little more just for me. <laughs> so I wasn't really like trying to bank on that. Um, anyway, long winded way of saying we were all jacks of all trades. And then as we were able to sort of move to bigger scale stuff, the cinematographer is now he's basically like our producer head producer. Um, and I do most of the directing. Uh, but but we farm out our directing a lot as well, because I'm not always the right fit for for whatever is happening or I'm not available or whatever it is. But because we had built that um, and for a few years, we had been expanding our network of teams. So this is like camera people, lighting people, sound designers, post people who we were paying pretty regularly <laughs> uh, with this branded work. Um, when the time came for me to come knocking on their door and say, hey, would you like to work three times as hard for way less money? They were game, you know, they were up for it because there was a lot of trust there and there was a lot of um, loyalty and care and we knew each other and we were cool like that. So so this was for your feature. That was for Imitation Girl. And so I, I bring it up because sometimes you, you, you're you building something, you're not 
exactly sure what's going to build two, but Imitation Girl would never be possible without the production company because we were able to tap into those teams. Uh, we were able to tap into money, just straight financing for the film. And what do you mean by that? Like, because you guys made money, like the company paid for it or you knew Not people entire, that were... Well, both, both. So partially was from the company itself, just putting straight into the movie as, as equity. Um, and then others was, you know, relationships. We had several EPs who knew us from our other work or we had produced other small films or short films with them and they were ready to take the leap with us. And when you say take the leap with us, were you basically offering them like equity to be part of the movie? It was a combination of different things. But yeah, it, it, it basically part of the film, right? So like points on the back end. Uh, yes, they were coming in as EPs. Investment basically. opportunities and a couple of different flavors. Exactly. Yeah. And these are small amounts of money in the grand scheme of things. But at the time, it wasn't what we needed to make the film happen. Um, so, yeah. And I, and I think all those things are a product of those five years. Yeah, because we, we shot the film in 2015. We started filming in 2015. We finished it in 2016. There was like a six-month gap between filming. But yeah, so I think the, the, the different aspects of your career can actually tie together i think if you can set yourself up in that way <laughs> to to have that you know yeah well, what i love about that is you know that's a thing that we have tried to talk about and illustrate on the show i think we it's funny i didn't realize this until now but like i think the three of us all have relatively parallel paths but in different scenes right and a thing that you know i think some people you know look at Oren and I who were doing like a lot of commercial work or branded work because especially back in like 2010 2015 a lot a lot of branded work out there and and it was people would be like well you're no one would ever say selling out because no one begrudges someone making money living their dream but it's like well you're wasting your time or why are you focusing on that right like well we had a major split in oh, our company interesting. there there was another member who ended up leaving the company because he wanted to focus on what he considered like the real art and whatever. And, and the, the rest of us were like, fuck that. We're here sure, to get some money. Get paid, right? <laughs> you, you know, like rent's and why you ain't bro. cheap. Right. So yeah, exactly. well, it, is, yeah. it ain't cheap. Yeah. Yeah. It's something I struggle with all the time. Matt and I have talked about this, not on the podcast, but like my manager, my, my film and TV manager is like, He's like, all you do is commercials. Like, that has nothing to do with me. <laughs> like, what? He's like, tell me how I can help you because with, I have nothing to do with these commercials. And I do wonder a lot of times, like, I'm, am I just, like, wasting <laughs> wasting all this time, like, trying to make the best Quiznos commercial, you know? No, because you need money. And also, it's it's also not just the money, though. It's the opportunity to be on set and to be directing and to see yourself in that way and have that confidence. I know for me it was huge. Yeah, it's going to the gym, right? Like you're figuring out how to do your job. And also I think really to your point of having that that network of trusted collaborators, not only who, you know, maybe owe you a favor here or there, but who you know you can trust and you have you have that's loyalty and also like a strong collaboration. You speak the same language, you know, you've you've put in the time together, you know. If someone were to say Hey Natasha, do you want to have a, a brand new crew that you've never worked with before and go make a micro budget film? Or, you know, how about like a five years worth of crewing with these people and in the trenches 
like learning what it's like to be stressed without out with them, learning what they're great at, learning what things maybe they need to be improved. Like, and then also learning from them because they're not working with you a hundred percent of the time. They're out in the field get, picking up all sorts of different tips and yeah. tricks from it's other directors, point. right? So yeah, it's a great point. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> have you ever have you guys ever done that? Like, you work with a DP that you know has worked with like some other really great directors, and you're like, so, so uh, you know, what would uh, yeah. Sam Mendes yeah, yeah. do in this? In this, like, how you know? Oh yeah, I just worked with the pro- this production designer that he's like Mark Forster's like commercial guy, and I'm like, what would you, what would Mark think about this yeah. set? Uh, I have. What yeah, did what say? did he say? He's like, yeah, I can't tell. <laughs> I, I have the opposite where I'm like, I'll tell you. I know Mark Forrester would never make you cut this corner, but I, can you make this just twenty percent shittier and cheaper because we have to shoot? It's <laughs> oh, the worst I've feeling. Like, Recently taken, really taken that, like, just try to not think of the budget, not in a way where, like, I'm trying to, I don't, I want to get the most expensive things, but like, I'll just ask for stuff until people say we can't afford that. Yeah, yeah. That's a learned behavior, though. Like, uh, you're not going to do that on your first time. I mean, I don't know, maybe some people will, but I I would. Well, you're kind of a dick if you do it on your first time. Yeah, that's like a bold move. But um, yeah, I think that that's confidence, right? And that's sort of knowing the knowing the ropes enough to know when you can push and when you can't push. I think there's also personality traits to it too. You know, uh, like I think Oren and I are both good boys. Do you know what I mean? Teacher's pet, people pleasers a little bit. Mm, more like I, maybe me more than Oren. Uh, pushovers. Yeah, yeah, but like, you know, and you slowly learn like being nice or like doing somebody a favor if the job is to make a good spot and you know that it's going to make it worse, it's sort of your job to like make it good. That's it. Yeah. You know, I will say, you know, since all of us, my partners at the company and myself all came from the crew side, we didn't really come from being producers or being writers. We were all on set and, you know, having suffered through many terrible meals and (laughs) overtime and all that, I think that gave us like a really special perspective on exactly what you're saying and and always sort of having that perspective. Um, But then for me, it was almost working backwards from that. So then saying, no, I am going to push for this. Uh, You are going to stay another hour. We are going to do this, you know, And, and I think you know, learning, relearning that is also just as important. It's maybe like super granular because I know a lot of people come from writing. Actually, in the horror scene specifically, a lot of people come from horror journalism and they're they're trying to sidestep. So they're like writing about horror. They write for like a horror magazine or something. And, uh, you know, then they sidestep in and they actually have no set experience, really. You know, they know the genre really well. Um, and, and so, you know, I think it's a balance between those two things. If yeah. That makes yeah. Sense. Without a doubt. It, it is funny how you, the, maybe the flip side of loving your crew and being like in the trenches with them is like, you do cringe at the thought of like making somebody go into overtime or something or like making them do it again when they know that, you know, you don't want it to be a personal thing, obviously, but I think doing all the things that you mentioned before, like taking care of them in the ways that are really important makes them know that when you need another hour of overtime it's because you need it yeah because you really do need it and you're not just bullshitting around yeah exactly Mm -hmm. okay so you have the successful first feature right you get distribution you play festivals you have the successful company you have this whole crew that, that will kill themselves for you what makes you 
then decide to throw that all away that is, and move that to is LA. A rosy, that is a rosy, rosy interpretation yeah, yeah. of Hold the on. last yeah, yeah. few years. You, you missed his punchline, though. <laughs> why? Why did you? Why oh, did you oh. throw it all away to move to Los Angeles? <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, why did I move to Los Angeles? My my fiance is a d- director of photography. I'm a director. We were both really feeling like we were hitting a wall uh, in New York. The and you were in New York City, right? Like, York, or like we, Brooklyn, or right? somewhere. Yeah, we were in Brooklyn. Yeah. And where people are. Where people are, yeah. Not yeah, like yeah. Long Island. Or Woodstock or something. There's a lot of people in Long Island. Uh, <laughs> no, like I, a lot of film people? Uh, no, that's true. Oh, um, totally, yeah. No, even but even in Brooklyn, you know, we really felt like we were hitting a wall um, with the work that we wanted to be doing and sort of the um, the place that we kept finding ourselves. And also rent was really fucking expensive. And LA was not as expensive, so yeah, <laughs> we decided to try it. Like 30% and you get like thirty percent more hard. square footage, right? Yeah, the yeah. space is nice. Um, yeah. It was here. Uh, one bedroom is only twenty five hundred a month. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Well, that's right. You're 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 spending that, and you have two roommates mm-hmm. in New York. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> so I joke, but my brother, when he first moved to New York, lived in a closet, like a literal actual yeah, closet. Yeah, he was probably paying a pretty penny. <laughs> Yeah, for the honor, yeah. for the honor of yeah, living yeah, in a exactly. closet in New York. No, it's crazy. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, New York has always been crazy, but it's bonkers. And now LA is getting expensive, but um, it was very difficult. It was very, very difficult. Uh, New York is our home. We will probably end up back there at some point, um, but it was time for us to move. My representation was in LA. So I, again, I mentioned my manager. And so it was sort of like opportunities were opening up and we felt like we were just booking a lot of flights if did you have any sense. jobs lined up in LA? Like, was it like, or or did you have like, let's wait till the end of the year? What was the thing that was like the marker? He or actually was your booked, fiance? he booked two movies in a row in New York. Oh, so and you were like, mm. <laughs> I moved into LA by myself. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> wow. he was working. But no, it was the movie. So um, I was releasing the film. So it was mostly like release stuff. And I guess that is still work, but it was um, a different kind of work. It was more... Your first movie. The first movie, exactly. Um, So was there this idea like, I have this movie out. It's doing well in the festivals. We have distribution. I should be in LA so I could take all these meetings and kind of try to level up. It was part of that for sure. We actually didn't really, we make, we made the move sort of in the middle of the festival thing. And I think I really wouldn't say it's entirely based on the movie. I think it was a long time coming kind of move that a lot of New York filmmakers feel like, okay, I'm going to go try it. I think especially if you're from the East Coast, you do kind of have this thing of, well, I should try it. I should get out of New York for a little bit. <laughs> do you ever call it going back West? Going back West? <laughs> yeah. I used to get so annoyed when people were like, oh, you're going back east. I'm like, I was never there to begin with. Oh, yeah, because you're from California. Yeah. Yeah. What, a, what an unusual from Brea. experience. California. Yeah. Or in from Brea. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it was, you know, the money being spent on all those JetBlue flights back and forth, back and forth, and it was just getting a lot. And I, we were finding that we were waiting to get back to LA because we were like getting through our time in New York and the work in New York so that we could get back. And, and that's when we realized, okay, we need to flip this. Um, and it was, it was the right decision. Did you us, have so. many peers who were in Los Angeles at the time also? Yeah. There's a, there's a kind of a five year brain drain cycle, I think for people, right? Yep. Absolutely. Um, two of my best friends actually moved out to LA this same week. <laughs> 
that we did <laughs> from New York. Um, so yeah, it was definitely, I, I, I didn't really have that like lonely LA. That's awesome. Okay. So you have this movie, it's hit movie. You got this hit manager, you move to the hit town. <laughs> it's all hold, hold on though. Just, just for actual scale and act, like what sort of distribution did uh, imitation girl get like you know it was very small very small yeah, yeah. We, we distributed with a um a very much an indie horror label um which was honestly great for us because it was a very small movie and we were able to sort of not just get you know you get all the offers for like you know the slap it on vod and you get a email from us once a quarter but uh these guys i actually developed a relationship with and the group that owned the label actually ended up financing lucky so um all roads are connected. <laughs> so what, um, I guess I'm curious, what was, has your manager kind of helped you in any oh, yeah. interesting way since you moved to LA? Oh yeah. We're super tight. Um, he's like a real, he's a real straight shooter <laughs> kind of guy, <laughs> which, um, which was good. What's for that me. mean that he's like, no one's going to buy this. Yeah. He, he just, uh, he just says it like it is, which I really appreciate. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it, it's all the stuff, right? Like it's all the representative stuff. Like you do the water bottle tour, you do the whatever. And then, um, you know, he got me signed with my agency and that's great. And I'm very grateful. And all that stuff is, is gravy. But at the end of the day, what matters is like, he, he's going to work with you, right? You have a common, a common vision, a common goal, right? Like a, um, a language that you can understand with each other that is a little bit built out of the time that you spend together, but it's also an instinct, right? So it's like, he likes the stuff that I make <laughs> and I like his taste. And so that at the end of the day is what's really important and what I appreciate. So I, yeah, I think I got lucky. I didn't do the manager tour. He just like found me on Twitter and was like, hey, do you have a manager? And I was like, what's a manager? And then that was it. <laughs> well, so how was he involved at all in Lucky, like helping you cast, finance, anything? Um, yeah, he he helped um, a fair amount. It kind of came as a finished package. Like I said, it came with financing. It came with Bria already attached. And she just like approached you because you were friends. Like, was it like, hey, I wrote this script. Do you want to check it out? How did that? So happen? the company actually sent it to me. One of the producers, the producer that distributed Imitation Girl, my first film, brought me this script. So he he knew me from Imitation Girl and we had formed a friendship, again, trust, right? We're talking about trust and honesty and loyalty and all that good stuff. So that was there, right? And so he he sent it to me, actually, and said, hey. So you're talking you about like tr trust and loyalty and all that stuff. It kind of reminds me of like a Nexium type of uh, organization. Is that what? Funny you should bring that was? up. <laughs> Um, do you want to hear my Nexium story? Is that yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, before we started rolling, we, we got a, a little bit of a spoiler that there's a, a slight Nexium. It, it came, came up. up. Yeah, yeah. It came up because there's multiple documentaries about it. No, I um I, I went to high school near Albany, um and uh so had a lot of friends up there and whatever. So it, back in New York, years um, after I had left Albany, I went out to sushi with a friend, uh, and she was like, "Oh, do you ever watch Smallville?" And I was like. Obviously, I watched Smallville. Smallville fucking rocks. And they're like, oh, I'm, uh, Allison Mack is going to meet us at the restaurant. And I was like, okay, rad. Like, she's the best part of Smallville. Let's go. <laughs> and um, she proceeded to pitch us on a creative retreat, a retreat 
So um, I'm doing error signs here because obviously that is not what it was. That was for like creative women. And she's like really pitching us hard. She's like, I can tell that you're like really motivated and all this stuff. And um, I'm meanwhile, my like spidey sense is tingling. I had two uncles in cults in the 70s. Okay? Oh, wow. So I'm like, I ones see we would bullshit. know like famous ones or no. Yeah, it's called Children of God. I think they're called something else now. It's like a wackadoodle Christian abusive thing. Um, but so my spidey sense was like tingling. I was like, this is fucking weird. This is some cult bullshit. And so I did it's not. It's funny because there's there's probably a way to pitch that that doesn't sound cultish. Like if someone's like, hey, we're doing this creative retreat. You want to come and be like. She was good. Yeah, she, she was good. I was like, oh, that sounds nice. And then we talked about like upstate New York a little bit. I'm, I'm looking this up. I, I know that the maybe you can take a photo of it, but that's uh, that's oh, from that night. <laughs> oh, well, I, I don't think we need to reveal her we'll phone. We'll blur it out. That's so good. Oh, that's for sure not her phone number anymore. <laughs> She's in Yeah, she prison. doesn't have a phone um, anymore. There's, wait, there's she no in prison? cell phone. Uh, wait, yeah, did, which, yes. did she get sentenced already? She's in state. Spoiler alert. I'm only on episode five uh, of oh, you now, guys. Sorry, sorry. Yes, she's in state prison. Uh Anyway, so that's my Nixium story. And then I think like when all this shit went down, my friend who had invited me out uh, was on page mm-hmm. six <laughs> and I'm in page six as like, oh, that's friend. excellent. They're like me uh, and a yeah, friend. <laughs> so page that, six that was my brush. Out. Yeah, that was my brush with, you know, six. I mean, all, like a lot of the, the Mark and Bonnie stuff is in our neighborhood. Like there's a lot, a lot, like I recognize the in building. Los Feliz? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's on Vermont. Yeah, yeah. Not too far from we. Yeah. Well, there's some weird culty vibes here, though. I'm not gonna. <sighs> Man, lie. my dream is to be invited to a cool cult. <laughs> Should have been there. I've only been invited to uh, the Landmark Forum. Mm-hmm. I have been invited and, to uh, Landmark Kabbalah. Forum as well. That's not very cool. And just like very borderline Scientology, but nothing like as exclusive as Nexium. So, <laughs> was Lucky significantly bigger than Imitation Girl? Not by a lot, actually. So kind it, it of some, just like a slight bump up. Yeah, it was like a small bump up in budget, but it's still micro, still tiny, still very difficult. We shot it in 15 days. Are you allowed all. to say how tiny? Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. I'll, uh, it was about $250,000. Um, okay. So on the big, on the very big end of micro. Yeah, it's like the decent end of yes, micro. Still, still ultra, ultra low. low. Ultra yeah, low still budget. Ultra low. Yeah, yeah by, by 100 Yeah, we shot it in 15 days which was not ideal all in LA. Where did you shoot it? Oh, LA. Yeah, LA. Um, we were Altadena, Pasadena, Highland Park. Natasha, I'm curious. So uh, lucky, you know, South by Southwest, you know, a little bit of a false start. It felt like at first, but like things have turned out well for a lot of the films at South by Southwest. And we've had a lot of those filmmakers on, but not in a while, frankly. So it's been announced that lucky is going to be on shutter sometime next year. Very excited about that. Can I ask, ha, has your life changed? What what happened at post, post-Lucky? post What's next for you, I guess, is what I'm getting at. My life has changed a lot because there's a pandemic. <laughs> so I don't know if there's an answer to your question that doesn't include the pandemic. Because I don't know what it's like to have a movie at South By in normal times and to be able to go. Um yeah, the the network has expanded. Um, I'm looking at, I think, more interesting projects. I think that um, people take me a little bit more seriously, incrementally, right? I mean, I think it's still a small horror movie. And at the end of the day, there is there is quite a lot 
of, um, I don't want to say prejudice, but people do look down on genre movies for sure as being sort of like cheap little right, slasher movies. Not, but it's a, it's a South by genre movie, right? Right, so which I feel gives like there's, you... Yeah, there's a, a quite a, a bit cachet. of cachet. Yeah. Especially, I think, in a genre film because... South by is the kind of ultimate fest, the ultimate mainstream festival you want to get into with a genre film, I would think. Yeah, we were super amped. I mean, I was so fucking happy when we found out because we we were rushing and we got in on a rough cut and um, and I just thought, oh, there's no there's no way there's no way we're going to get And and so when we got in, I was very, very excited and I was frankly very, very sad when um, when it didn't happen. And And I think that's. That's a bummer because even if I do another film that goes to South by, it won't be that. It won't be like, this is my first film at South by. You know, it won't have that. You don't get a do-over. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. It'll be like another project, you know, where I'm going to be in a different place in my life and all that. So, Can, can I ask a weird technical question about that submission? Um, so when you submit this rough cut to South by, what do you tell them like about it? Like, what do you say about the rough cut? Like, what do you qualify Oh, so you say what specifically? So we were, I think we said, um, it wasn't a rough cut. It was like a fine, it was a fine cut, I would say. Um, I would, we, you know, temp, temp music. So like no score, but we actually used all of our temp music was scored by our composer. So I used music from other of his work in. So like at least the vibe was, they could understand what the vibe was. Uh, temp VFX, no sound design, obviously. That's a really big one. Uh, temp color so we just like list it out to our contact you know this blah 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 blah. here's what's what's rough and i guess they saw you know you they're able to see enough i, I want to go back just a, a beat to talk about why for listeners at home why south by is a bigger deal specifically for a genre film right because there's a lot of really wonderful genre festivals out there right like we talked about like uh fantastic fest is great you know like there's a lot of like Fantasia, other uh, festivals that start with F, um, and and also there's there's like uh, midnight programs for some more mainstream festivals, but the difference between getting accepted into a mainstream festival and getting accepted to a really wonderful genre festival is kind of the thing that we were talking about before when I was talking about quote unquote elevated genre. It's and it's it's a a harsh reality of the way that some people see genre film in general. Do you want to talk? I think you, you get what I'm getting at. You want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. Well, people, non horror fans will go to South by. Right. Or like, I mean, even Hollywood people, right? Like yeah. the agents and managers and all those people. Distributors. I, I um, think people executives. are coming around to like fantastic fest and all those are these huge successful festivals, but there's still but South by is a name everybody knows. Yes. Yes. Um, it's considered, I, I mean, what do they call it? Like the top six or something. What I think is extra special about South by, to be honest, is that it does still sort of have that scrappy indie aspect to it as compared to like a Toronto or Cannes or something like that, which is extremely polished. And believe me, I would be fucking thrilled to have a movie play at Cannes, but there is that sort of scrappiness to it that I think is fun for a horror movie. Like you can't, your movie can play at like 11 PM and people will be drunk and on sixth street in Austin. And it like, it still feels like a party is my point, which is what's so fun about the genre festivals. Cause the genre festivals you go and you see all your friends, you know, <laughs> it's like a few times a year you get to go to Montreal and see all your friends. Um, and so it, I think it still has that vibe. 
but it is sort of that the viewers who are there, the audience, there's big execs, there's people who are can you can take a meeting with them and and that can really be good for your career. So, yes. Um did you write your first movie? I did. Okay. And then so what's for your next movie or TV show or whatever is next for you is that like how, what's your kind of balance between directing and writing? I love both. Um, writing takes a hell of a lot longer. You can read somebody else's script and give them notes much faster than generating a really super solid script of your own. So I sort of see it as like the script writing wheel is turning and it turns at its own pace and I don't rush it. Um, but then I can really buzz through a lot of scripts in a week, you know, like I can really go through. So, you know, you keep them both going. But then, of course, the quality is that, right? Like the script that you're doing is 100% what you want to do. <laughs> that is your movie. Whereas these other scripts, yeah, you can read, you know, a bunch of them and be winding through them. But 90% of them is not going to be something that you connect to. So, you know, at the end of the day, they maybe kind of catch up with each other. And in the end, you know, your project is the one that's that's actually going to go. Um, but with that said, I'm perfectly happy doing going either path. Um, I think you just keep, you know, I kind of think of it like pots on the stove. And I think as filmmakers, we have to do that where we're talking about our commercial lives as well which like maybe our reps don't always understand that we have that whole other side of ourselves where it's like, I'm maintaining a commercial career, you know, and, and trying to keep that going and, and that sort of bustling in its own way. And then on the scripted side, you know, you have your babies, you have your scripts that you're sort of trying to grow and hopefully nourishing them in the way that they need to be nourished. But also you have, you know, two or three other scripts that you really like that are maybe set up with a cool producer. You know, it has those other things about it that are exciting. Um, I also really love some other writers in my life. And I think that their work is really good and that they're great collaborators. So I don't want to cut myself off to their creativity, you know, and I would love to be a part of their world as well. So it's really like all those different engines always pumping at the same time which is exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I get I think that is that's just a, a portrait of a modern filmmaker also though. You know, like I think independent film is a thing that makes you more desirable to TV producers or or even like commercial producers. Uh, but you don't get rich off of indie films necessarily, right? But, you know, they they nourish you in a different way whereas commercials, you know, you can find a way to love them, for instance, but uh but they are there to give you some sustainability so that you can go out and do those indie films. So And not be stressed out about money. I mean, anxiety and stress is, is already part of our lives <laughs> by proxy of what we do. So then to also be worried about paying your bills is crippling. And, and it really is going to block your creativity. It's going to block your ability to go and meet people to have those conversations in a relaxed and confident way. So if, if you need to go do something else to pay your bills so that you're able to do those things, then that's what you have to do. You know, there's, that's part of it. It's part of the gig. Yeah. Did you see, so are you kind of rebuilding your commercial stuff in LA also? I'm really not. I mean, it is a weird time. <laughs> I, should, I shouldn't to, have said that because I was like, definitely not something I'm focusing on. But um, actually, I've noticed that the commercial stuff is actually picking up pretty fast um i've actually been very busy the last few months last i don't know labor day month like, yeah yeah. Okay. yeah like labor day on it's been pretty busy um i just did my first car commercial which is a lot hey of fun. congratulations oh cool thank you um 
Which car? It's called the Genesis. <laughs> it's yeah, Hyundai. Yeah, it's Hyundai's. Um, do you do a lot of car stuff? I've done a little car stuff. I've done. I pitched on Hyundai, which is why I know it. It rhymes with Sunday, <laughs> and it's not Hyundai. I know. I which definitely is what Matt always to say says. Hyundai. Drives me crazy. Hyundai. I yeah, and I drive one. Extra <laughs> embarrassing. Okay. Yeah, they're, um, they're not great. Uh, <laughs> but the Genesis is awesome because it's like secret Hyundai. Yeah, I didn't right? know. It's like, oh, it doesn't say Hyundai on the car. It just. I've actually pitched on a Genesis thing years nice. ago, but um, but yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a nice car. It's like their luxury. It was cool. It's like their Lexus or whatever. It was cool. Yeah, it was a cool experience. Um, but I know I was saying like you keep all the engines going, but it is really hard. So there's definitely times where like the commercials are not a part of my day to day, and then there's other times where it comes in and you're like, great, I can do this. I can like switch gears and and work on this and be really engaged. So it's not like always constant all the time it's definitely you know you're you're um you know right. dancing between yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. well dancing the, between your identities as a filmmaker they're also <laughs> quite cyclical you know like you were saying things start picking up it's because it's the end of the year and people are spending their budgets down and then also it'll be quiet <laughs> yeah it'll be quiet in february the other thing is that they're short term so turning down a three-week gig isn't as devastating as you know if you because you're busy making a movie or something like that you know absolutely yeah absolutely yeah i think uh it will be in the feature space i mean you brought up tv that i would say that's one sort of blank spot in my career that i should sort of be focusing on expanding because i think episodic directing is very interesting and um a good way to sort of like make money and and Again, you know, go to the gym, as you say. <laughs> um, but also, but- it's like, a, especially if you as a filmmaker are someone that enjoys directing other people's writing as well as your own, it seems like a good Yeah, place. I have absolutely no interest in show running. Like, that seems crazy to me. <laughs> um, but I think, like, popping in and popping out sounds really appealing. But I think my next project will be in the feature space. And do you, would you do another feature the same size as your last two features? Or is there kind of a goal to always grow a little bit i would not it's too hard (laughs) it's just it's way too hard you know i i think we've done it um you know my team is incredible we busted ass and we got our little movie into south by and that's great and there's nothing really else i have to say in the space because the next steps now for me is to um again we were talking about visual effects and practical effects and action sequences and and learning to play with the tools. And um, I'm very interested in those things. And I think the the limitations and the ceiling that you hit with a micro is just, it's sort of lost its, uh, it doesn't entertain me anymore. It doesn't feel like a challenge. It doesn't feel like there's anything more to learn in this space. Now the next space is more interesting. Yeah, but it's almost kind of like getting an undergrad degree, right? Like there's only so many of those you can live through before you're, I guess that's what you're saying is like, you, you kind of got a lot of value. You kind of got the the most value you can kind of get out of a micro budget film. So for, for me and, and yeah. other people love the, I love the freedom of an indie, right? Like I get that. I totally get that. Um, you know, you can go on, you can change the script, you can work with the actors, you have total... Uh, almost total freedom to 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 do exactly what you need to do in that moment. And that goes away. I understand that. It goes away um, as you move up in tiers. Um, however, I'm ready to make that trade and, and be able to, you know, spread my wings a little bit more 
in that space. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, never say never, but yeah, I know. I like, I was attached to this kind of like 200 ish thousand dollar film last year. And it was, I mean, I, I don't know. It, it kind of was like, if we could book a name, it would have gone up a little bit, you know, but it's still in that range where it's like, we'd ha- get more money for a name, but we wouldn't get any more money for production. And I was just kind of honestly dreading it the whole time. I was kind of hoping it would never go because I mean, I talk to Matt about it all the time. I talk about it on the podcast. I'm like, I just don't know. It's like just going to be me like being in the art department. I don't know how we're going to do this. It's going to be impossible. I think more realistically, you just end up being the VFX department, which is like, yeah. you know. Or I just start solving everything with VFX and then it just looks like a really crappy movie. Yeah, you um, don't want to do that either. It's really, it's draining. You know, it's completely draining on you as a person. You're going to lose money. You are going to lose money. <laughs> And doing a movie like that. So, you know, if you give any shit at all, you will lose money. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's only so many times you can, frankly, like, afford to do that. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, thanks well, for <laughs> telling us your story. I hope I hope that wasn't a downer. It was a downer. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I think there's no, so many, so many uh, pieces of information that... Look, it's practical, right? Like, we, we just talked about the other ways that people make money and the ways that this micro budget films can be an investment in your career right and like you Huge are living investment. living proof of that right so making making the first feature did change my life that that was a huge step forward for me in my career and it was incredibly difficult i worked at a coffee shop for like 6 months after that movie just trying to recoup and pay something right, <laughs> back just to coffee. you know pay some, yeah exactly like free pastries and shit like it's fucking hard you know and and that um is is an investment however uh making your first movie making your first micro is absolutely worth it so you know you have to love it to get through it (laughs) and you won't always love it but um but i i certainly have no regrets and you would have never gotten the second one without the first one and now i see i think why i think this is like an optimistic conversation is because you're like I made my first one for nothing. I killed myself. I made my second one because people believed in me and it played South by. And now I know that the next one is going to be even bigger. So, yeah, that's that's um, it. Look, some people can like jump many, many ladders and like somehow skyrocket for the rest of us schlubs. We have to work. We have to work our way up. And this is how you do it. You know, little by little finding projects you love that can get financed. (laughs) And um, yeah, I think moving moving forward. Yeah. Awesome. Matt and I are professional slugs. So we, <laughs> we get it. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, Natasha, this is great. Can you hang out and endorse with us? Yes, of course. Unpaid endorsements. My unpaid endorsement is a podcast called Dead Eyes. It is great. Let me, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, so it is the long form interview and like pseudo journalistic pursuit of a of a comedian from new york actually or or in the new york scene named connor ratliff you know he has like a, he was at ucb a lot he did a, a show of where he like imitates george lucas and he was on the chris, chris gathered show for a while but he has a story that he's told for 20 years now where he was cast in the show band of brothers which was a big world war ii epic show Oh yeah, I loved Band of Brothers. And yes, Tom Hanks was. He told him his eyes look dead. Yes, Tom. Sorry. Okay, go on. I haven't heard the story. (laughs) 
Oh no. Or, so so, so oh, Tom no. Hanks calls him in and uh and he's he's cast. He's in London. Like they are sh- gonna shoot. And then they have him audition again for Tom Hanks as kind of like a Hail Mary. Tom Hanks it gets back to to Connor Ratliff. Tom Hanks says well, I, we have to replace him. Connor has dead eyes. <laughs> and so that's so brutal. So, so brutal. And he was obsessed with it for a long time. And so now it is a genuinely great, pretty cathartic podcast about him figuring that out, unpacking that for himself in a way that's like totally healthy. And he realizes is uh, all about him and not about Tom Hanks making a business decision. But it's really funny, really great. I highly recommend it. Let me ask uh, you two, because it's a thing I've been talking about with my friends. Would you use the term dead eyes or slash do you know what it means? I mean, I would assume it just means like tired or and like looking. <laughs> no, I, I've never, so, I would never so use it. My, dead in the eyes is what I've heard. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Dead, she's dead in the eyes mm-hmm. or he's dead in the eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like no inner life. Maybe like maybe bad listening. Like a zombie. Yeah. Yeah. That's something you would say about a human being. I wouldn't ever say, oh, that person has dead eyes, but I know what they mean. And like maybe a, a rude casting director or like someone who's like tired it's or jaded. It's very extreme. Like yeah. those are fighting words to an actor. Yeah. Like, yeah. To say <laughs> yeah. Look up yeah. what Connor Ratliff looks like. Actually, I looked I know, him I up in my, him in my Gmail and he was a writer on some stuff I worked on back in Dis- at Disney. But oh, that's he funny. was like... I think he lived in New York, and so yeah. he was like a friend of one of the directors. Oh, mm-hmm. he does. I'm looking have at his eyes. Look. He has great eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're I, blue. I, yeah, I mean, but I it is—it's pretty. It's pretty funny that you know maybe the nicest man in Hollywood, you know, ho- like the America's dad said something, said something mean, and then really fi- fired somebody <laughs> as like you know like a. 20 year old kid or whatever so i think the best the best thing for that podcast is if tom hanks became president <laughs> well they're really i i they're into season two so i'm not fully caught up yet but they are really gunning to get him on the show and i think that yeah. i think they will i think they will that would eventually. be really yeah. epic i think nice. it's it's popular enough now that certainly someone has told him Tom Hanks, like, hey, there's a podcast about you. Like, it's gotten back to him. I'm, it, there must be. Anyway, we talked about Tom Hanks's Twitter page. <laughs> no, Do you know about it? No, he just posts. It's like called Hank. I think it's H A N X or something at Hanks, and he just posts like lost items he finds, like suck on Fifth and you know Madison or whatever. I mean, it's just it's a very weird Twitter. Yeah. I did not know that. that. I'm actually off Twitter. I'm off Twitter. I'm Ooh. off Facebook. Congratulations. As of, as of uh, Saturday very or like forever? Uh, as of earlier this year, just with the pandemic, I was on there. There was like a lot of toxic shit going on. And I was like, I'm I'm good. I am still on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's hard to be negative somehow. Yeah. yeah. Like it feels more like uh, kind and mm-hmm. chill. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard it's to complain mellow. on Instagram. Yeah. Well, Natasha, can you tell us uh, what your unpaid endorsement is? Yes, my unpaid endorsement is there are some, um, there's two very exciting uh, runoff elections happening in Georgia next, early next year, January 5th. And we have the opportunity to have more Democrats in the Senate. And this is a huge opportunity. So there's a great 
organization called Vote Save America that you can go to votesaveamerica.com backslash get Mitch, <laughs> as in Mitch McConnell, um, to try and take back their majority. So I encourage everybody who gives a shit to <laughs> check it out and contribute. You, there's opportunities. You can volunteer, you can phone bank, you can text bank, you can give money. Um, just every little bit definitely counts. And so we had a huge victory and now let's keep it going. If I moved to Georgia right now, do you think I can vote there? Yeah, you can vote. You can register until December 7th. But how long do I have to live in Georgia in order to that is a great be question. a legal voter? I is bet the information late? is available to you on votesaveamerica.com. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, you can't just be like, well, we all rented an apartment. I'll... 200 of my friends. I wonder. Yeah, there's. Yeah. I wonder there must be rules about that. Look, it's worth a try. Yeah, listen. And I've heard listen. this thing about the recent election that um, the presidential votes were all fraudulent, <laughs> but Such the a good point. congressional yeah. ones were real. Is that, is that true? Is yeah. that real? Yeah. Is that really yeah. happening? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it <laughs> makes complete logical sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Um, um, Warren, what awesome. you got? So I have. You know, I've been, just something, just a thought I had that I'm just going to talk about, which is uh, pretty obvious. But you know when you go buy a car? If we went to buy a car right now, brand new car, what year car would you get? I I don't know. I'm not a big car guy. I like. I would rather buy uh, like a recently used car. <laughs> okay. I, I don't well, know if I'll ever buy a real a, a used car. It's not supposed frankly. to be a trick question. <laughs> Basically, if you went to a dealership now and you're like, hey, I want to get a new you would Nissan. get would you oh, get a 2021? 2021 yeah yeah, yeah. it'd be next year right okay right even though it's 2020 basically like halfway through the year they're already putting next year's right. year on it that and is it occurred stressful. to me that everybody that listens to this podcast when you are making your reel just put next year's year on it okay <laughs> um That's i mean a i good guess punchline or the first recommendation is don't put the year on it but we know you're going to I don't know why. I don't know why I did it. I don't know why every manager has to call me and say, like, hey, can you take the 2015 off your reel before I send it out? Um, by the time you get the momentum of people watching your reel, it's going to be next year, especially this year. Um, so if you're cutting a reel right now because it's COVID and things are picking up and you want to show people your stuff, um, just put 2021 on it. It'll make your year last an entire your real last an entire year longer. Natasha, as so, as a uh, as a founder of a production company and a successful commercial director, do you think that putting a year on your reel is worth it in the first place? Is that necessary? No, I stopped putting the years on uh, a while back, actually, because of exactly what Oren is talking oh, there you go. about. So, important follow-up question. <laughs> so many times it had been like, oh, God, I got to... <laughs> I do not currently have a reel. I don't have, like, a sizzly montage reel. I only send just whatever spots are specific. Yeah, I... Where do I you land on that? I, I took mine down uh, earlier this year, actually, um, just because it didn't feel like something I was using and I didn't want it. it I didn't want it out there in the world um, if it wasn't something I was actively using, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, Orange is very, names. very good. So that's part Listen, if you have a dope reel, that's awesome. I just never really like if it was super cool, I would use it and then I would keep it if that makes sense. But it's just at this point, it's more productive for me to just share. And then on the feature side, on the sort of scripted side, nobody really very few people look at reels. They'll look at your IMDb or whatever. Or a trailer to your movie. Trailer to movie. Yeah. 
Um, I noticed your production company has a 91 second reel. And my only note on that is, can we get it to 90 seconds? I think that would be a nice even number. <laughs> I'll pass that along. I'll pass that along. Uh, well, Natasha, this has been great. Uh, how can listeners learn more about your film, Lucky, and also about yourself? Where can they keep track of what's going on? Yeah, for sure. So um, unlike me, my production company does have a Twitter <laughs> And you can stay up to date. It's at Ilium Pictures. So it's I-L-L-I-U-M Pictures. Uh, and people can also follow Shudder. Um, we're releasing uh, with Shudder, which is a horror streaming service. We're super happy. Uh, and First seven days for free. Sorry. Seven days for free. Yeah, exactly. So if you time it out right, you can catch us in that. And it's Shudder with a D, right? Yes. Shudder. Like, ooh, scary. Like udder. Yeah. <laughs> Except not like No, udder. not like udder. Udder. Like the other utter. No, yeah. Like an utter you, shame. Oh. No. Utter, no. Utter, like no, a, no. cow utters? Like a, cow's like a cow's teat, yeah. I think. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Not like, utter despair. Right. Yeah. Yeah. right. Utter despair. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's when so, yeah. the, the milk, you're milking the wrong. Cow. <laughs> yeah. Keep going. Keep going. That's all I got. Um, so, yeah. So, Ilium Pictures or Shudder will have all the info. And if you want to see my Phantom Thread memes, I'm at Natakerm on Instagram. Oh, cool. And Ilium is having a creative retreat sometime soon, right? Is that... <laughs> Everyone's invited. Yeah, it's only $1,000 a piece. It's in yeah. Albany. <laughs> I, I'm happy to invite you, Oren, to our creative retreat. Oh, thank I can you. tell that you're like a really positive person. Mm -hmm. And you're really like, you're going to strive to get to that. Yeah, Oren's just got some blockage. You know, I feel I sense some resistance. But as soon as you unlock that, I think all of your dreams will come true. Yeah, worked for John Travolta. <laughs> what can it do for me? Yeah. Well, if you guys want to learn more about what we talked about, you can go to our website, just shoot at podcast.com. We will post everything we talked about in the show notes. You can email us any questions, comments. If you want to ask Natasha anything, we'll forward it on to her. Uh, our email address is just shoot at pod at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm at OKaplan or on Twitter. I'm at SmiteyPileg. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow across all social media. Uh, the music you're listening to is by the Free Music Archive and the Artist Jazar. This episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And our social media maestro is Derek Aiello. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.